Attention crew, this is your Captain Caliban speaking. This is a supplemental episode of Enterprising Individuals, where we bring you news and tidbits from the world of Trek, also interviews with special guests, and a few little surprises along the way. If you've been watching the new series Lower Decks on CBS All Access, I hope you'll consider joining us for Discoverage Thursday nights this fall. Every Thursday at 7 p.m. Central, I and my co-host Ella are joined by a special guest to talk about the latest episode of Star Trek Lower Decks. We're also talking about Trek news, and we take your comments and questions live on the air. Did I mention it's a live show? It is. We're covering every episode of Lower Decks, and then we're rolling right along with the 23 weeks of Trek into covering the show's namesake, Star Trek Discovery when it returns for its third season this fall. Follow us at at EISTpod on Twitter to get notified when we're going live, and you can tweet at the show using the hashtag Discoverage to join the conversation. See you Thursday nights. This week on the show, I'm joined by Dr. Ethan Siegel. Dr. Siegel is an astrophysicist and a writer and science communicator, and he's the author of a book called Treknology, the Science of Star Trek from Tricorders to Warp Drive. We like to think that the future of Star Trek and their amazing technology is centuries away, and in the case of warp drives or matter replication, that might be totally accurate, but many of the technologies we see on Star Trek are already achievable today, and I don't just mean flat-screen TVs or iPads or self-opening supermarket doors. Did you know that the U.S. Army has developed a non-lethal phaser weapon, or that a working tractor beam has been successfully tested in a lab setting? I mean, it can only tractor microscopic particles, but you know, you gotta start somewhere, right? Our technology is changing so fast that our world would be almost unrecognizable to someone from a hundred years ago. How far would you have to go into the future until you didn't recognize the world? I don't know the exact answer, but I bet it's a heck of a lot less than a hundred years. That's what Dr. Siegel is all about in his role as a science communicator, explaining the scientific principles behind the fictional technology we see on track and detailing how we could achieve those accomplishments with our current understanding of science. And that's what we're talking about in this hour. We also talk about how he got started with Trek, his work as an educator, and we discuss the way in which sci-fi and reality often borrow from each other. I hope you enjoy our talk. Thanks to Ethan for being on the show. You can check out his blog at startswithabang at forbes.com. Stay tuned to hear how you can get his excellent book, Technology. That's it for me. Set your phasers on Understand. And with that, let's get underway. My guest on the show today is Dr. Ethan Siegel. Dr. Siegel is an astrophysicist, an author, and a science communicator. He's the author of the award-winning blog, Starts with a Bang, where he writes about physics and astronomy. He's a regular contributor on science topics to Forbes.com, and he's the author of Technology: the science of Star Trek from tricorders to warp drive. Dr. Siegel, welcome to the show. It's my pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me, and I'm so excited to talk to your audience about all things Star Trek. Me too. It's good to have you aboard. I always ask new guests on the show how they first became Star Trek fans. How did you first discover Star Trek? You know, it's kind of funny. When I was uh, when I was maybe 11, 12 years old, I was aware that uh, Star Trek The Next Generation was on TV, and my mom was a fan of the original series. And uh, one day, I, I decided to give it a shot, and I started watching an episode. And, you know, this was like back in the season one, season two days. Sure. And... Uh, um, and I didn't like it all that much. It wasn't a great episode. <laughs> yeah. And my mom was like, you know, there's only one captain ever, and that's Kirk. And this guy will never be a Star Trek captain. Yeah. Uh, and then about two years later, you know, my friends were telling me, like, you should really give this another shot. Like, you watched it early on. It wasn't that great. Uh, and I did. I, I turned it back on. And... 
I was blown away by it. I was really blown away by it because it sort of combined this love that I always had for space and science and the future and um, and what we could accomplish uh, from a scientific and technological perspective. But it also brought in uh, this aspect of altruism. It brought in this aspect of, you know, we could work together to build this, you know, this wonderful future where so many of the problems that plague our world today, like injustice and poverty and inequality and um, and all these problems that we, we have are. Uh, are no longer problems. The idea of having a unified Earth or or even a unified galaxy where different civilizations all work together for the collective benefit of everyone while everyone on board still maintain their own individuality and their own talents and their own skills, uh, that was that was really like a vision of a utopia that spoke to me. Uh, and so it was. It was next generation that that really drew me into the Star Trek universe. Yeah, and it's really incredible. Like, I don't know if this is Roddenberry's uh, intention from a commercial point of view, but just putting that chocolate and peanut butter, the chocolate is, you know, science and space exploration, and the peanut butter is this altruism and this positive view of the future. It's just such an enduring thing. I guess I've been doing a social experiment of sorts in the five years I've been doing this show, asking people how they discovered Star Trek. And so many people talk about how um, you know, if they're old enough, they're fans of the original series, but generally it's like their parents were fans of the original series and the way that they passed it down. And also having seen the original series and then seeing TNG, which was a little different, but eventually just began to, to fill the same niche and explore the same themes. And the way that Trek constantly changes, they're on a space station or they're in the past or the future. It, the more it changes, the more it seems to stay the same by just holding to that those same ideals and giving you something familiar while changing the setting is is a it's a great move for a franchise just from a commercial standpoint. I I agree with that. One of the things I also like about it now that I've you know now that I'm not 14 anymore and I've seen a wide variety of Star Trek incarnations is. Yeah. It's become real clear to me that you can use this science fiction setting as a lens to talk about social problems and approach them from different angles and also the intersection of of technology with the issues we're facing like that interface you can really explore that very well in a Star Trek environment in a way that I think if you tried to not make an allegory, if you tried to do it directly, it would either seem too heavy-handed or it would seem preachy. And I don't think Star Trek generally suffers from that. I think that in Star Trek, you you really wrestle with the, the emotional issues. And sometimes I find myself, you know, strongly disagreeing with the ethics that, that they try to put forth as this is the right way to behave. And, mm. and I find those aspects even more interesting because it it makes me look within myself for why why do I so strongly feel that way yeah. and it's interesting to think back to my time as a teenager um because the you know now at at age 41 I sort of look back and I think you know some of those things where I was like no you have to go and you have to act this way I I don't think that way anymore I think you know <laughs> um you know to borrow from another sci-fi series uh Battlestar Galactica um 
I love when uh, the president there, Roslyn, tells the young, ambitious captain, uh, you know, the uh, the younger Adama, Lee Adama, tells him, you know, you're so hell-bent on doing the right thing that I worry you won't do the smart thing. Uh-huh. And, <laughs> yeah. and, and she eloquently put into words uh, probably why I admire... Captain Picard so thoroughly is because mm. um, when when you see the impulsive thing that that usually Riker's the advocate for, where it's like, oh, the, our Klingon allies are being attacked by the Romulans, we have to leap to their defense. It's like, no, they're having a war. We don't intervene. Right. Take us safely out of here. Plot a course and <laughs> let them fight their own battles. This is not our fight. We don't want to drag the Federation into the war. And you know, as a as a younger person, I look at that and I'm like, Riker's right. You have to stand up for your buddies. Get out there. And <laughs> now I sort of see, you know, maybe that isn't always the right decision. Sometimes it is, but not always. Yeah. Uh, being diplomatic in that case. Did uh, loving Star Trek as a kid motivate you to pursue science as a career? You know, I I don't want to discourage anyone who's who that's their experience, because I yeah. think that's the experience of many of the scientists I, I speak to is that Star Trek was one of those things that that really drew them into to science or engineering or or some technology-based career. Uh, and for me, it was actually the other way around. I think that I always had an interest in science and in how the universe worked and understanding how things came to be the way they are. And it was actually the fusion of that science and that altruism that drew me into Star Trek. And so I think that that Star Trek was really my my first exposure to the world of of science fiction and hard science fiction that um, that that I still harbor a love for today. So I think that, uh, you know, people who are drawn into science by by something like Star Trek, I think that's an incredibly valid and valuable perspective. And it's a useful function of Star Trek as well. But for me, um, it was actually the other way around, that it was a love for science that drew me into Star Trek. Well, you get your PhD in astrophysics and you've taught at the high school and the collegiate level, but then you decide... I don't think I want to teach. I don't want a research career. That's not what I want. You focus instead on science outreach. What motivated that shift for you? You know, it's it's kind of a funny story. I think we we have this uh, this word that we use as a dirty word in in our daily lives, and that word is crisis, mm. right? And um, a crisis is something where you're you're going down a path and you're you know, you're pursuing a goal that you're like, this is what I want. This is what I enjoy doing. And you go out and you're doing it and you're working on it. Um, and sometimes an event will come along or a series of events will come along and you'll have an epiphany and you'll have a realization to say like, oh no, like this isn't what I want to keep doing. I don't want to continue going down this path. This is not what I want for the remainder of my life. Um, And what do you do when that happens? You know, I, I say you have a crisis and you should have a crisis because a crisis is not oh no my world is falling apart and I'm gonna I'm gonna fall apart as a result. It's really saying you know I see the path I'm going down and I don't want to continue going where it's leading. I need to make a change. What do I do next? 
And I've had that happen multiple times in my life. You mentioned that I was a high school teacher. That was something I did after college before ever really considering going to graduate school. And it was while I was doing that that I realized, you know, uh, I, I'm doing fine at this, but it isn't what I want to do forever. What do I want to do next? And, you know, for me, that answer was, well, um, I want to learn all I can about what the universe is, how it got to be this way, where it came from, and what its ultimate fate is. And I was very pleased to learn, like, this is not philosophy or theology or, or poetry or anything like that. This is a hard actual science. It's right. a science known as cosmology, and it's a branch of theoretical astrophysics. And I can go to graduate school. There are people who specialize in this, and I can study it. And so that was what I did. And then after that, you know, you go down your path and you're saying, okay, well, I love what I'm doing and I love the research I'm doing and all of that. Uh, and it was actually while I was doing my research, while I was a postdoctoral research associate, that I started to have a bad experience. And I was like, you know... Um, maybe this isn't what I want to be doing forever. And so if I wasn't going to be a research professor trying to solve the mysteries of dark matter, dark energy, and cosmic inflation, what is it that I'd rather be doing? And I said, you know, you've... Ethan, you've always loved teaching. You've always loved sharing what you know with as wide an audience as possible, not just a classroom full of people, but but the whole world. Is there a way for you to do that? And so I started getting involved in science outreach. And even though I was a professor after that for a number of years, I was I was always writing articles, speaking to the general public, um, blogging, making videos, doing radio and podcast interviews and um, it got to a point in my life where I sort of said to myself you know I can either try and do both and try and split my efforts and have a foot in the academic world and a foot in the science outreach world or I can just say you know what uh, this is what I want to do. I can try and make a go of it. I can try and make a career and a life out of this and devote my full efforts to doing that. And I made that decision a few years ago, and I haven't looked back since. So I know it's an unusual path, and I know it's not the way most people go about, uh, you know, living their lives is, you know, doing something where if you had asked, told me 15 years ago, like, hey, Ethan, this is what you're going to be doing now, I would have told you, like, that's not even a career. Like, like nobody makes a living doing that. Um, <laughs> yeah. and, and that would have been true, but you never know what it is that you can do until you go out and you try and create it for yourself. And yeah. I've been very fortunate. I've gotten a lot of help along the way. I've had a lot of people, total strangers even, who have come to support me and tell me they believe in me. And, um, you know, I remember when I was in graduate school, I asked my advisor, like, what it was that drove him forward and he said to me you know I I love what I do every day so much that I can't imagine not doing it as long as someone is willing to allow me to make a living doing it and I feel like that I didn't quite feel that way about the research I was doing I felt more like you know I I can't imagine going through my life not knowing this, uh, but once I learned what was there up to the frontiers and I'm just banging my head against the wall like everyone else trying to figure <laughs> out like what's the next big breakthrough and and getting frustrated with not making it or making a tiny dent in things. Yeah. Um, this was... Uh, 
this was sort of the you know maybe it's this maybe it's sharing the knowledge and the wonder and the appreciation about what we what we know about the universe with the general public with everyone who's curious about it not just people who've gone and gotten their phd in the thing i got my phd in uh, maybe that's something that that i can have that level of passion for and and so far so good well, it's great that so many people blow through those moments of crisis simply because they just feel committed, uh, pot committed to what they're doing, you know, or they wouldn't question necessarily the path that they're on. And um, I myself had a moment like that a couple of years ago um, when I started uh, writing and broadcasting because I had been in the corporate world for so long and been so dissatisfied by what I was doing that I finally just sort of said, well, what if I just do something else and, and do this? And um that's why we're talking today. <laughs> no, and that's that's fantastic, isn't it? I mean, we, you know, you you look even, you know, to Star Trek, to something like this, and you, you look at um, all the different career paths that are out there, yeah. and you see people that you saw in engineering, in the medical field, um, all of a sudden, like down the road, they get a command position. They get a, yeah. th they can switch careers too. They can switch specialties too. You're not, you don't have to be a one trick pony. Um, you can, you can choose to cultivate what it is you're interested in. And I feel like that, that intersection of what you excel at and where your interest and passion lies, um, that's, that's where that secret to living a satisfied life with your career and how you choose to work and spend your efforts, that's where that secret lies. Yeah, I'd agree. Is there, uh, just going back to something you said earlier, is there like an existential ennui for some astrophysicists in, in that we may never know some of these things that they're, that they're, you know, examining and experimenting and looking into. Like when you think of a biologist, you know, we don't know the entire genome, the human genome or something, but over a process of time, we will have mapped it all and then we'll have that information and hopefully be able to do something with that. But some of these theoretical things that that we're dealing with, you know, we may never get a, a, a an equation of quantum gravity or something like that. Like, uh, is there in the industry people who, who feel that way, like you do, who are just like, I don't want to keep banging my head against these against these problems and these questions? Well, I mean, so one of the things that I think about that is I I don't doubt that there are answers to those big questions. Is there a quantum theory of gravity? Um, I either either yes or no, there is an answer. Will we ever know what it is if mm -hmm. there is one? Will we ever know why there isn't one if there isn't one? Um, that I can't answer. From a from a theorist perspective, I will tell you some of the uncomfortable truths about theoretical physics that I don't think most non-theoretical physicists realize. And mm. that is when you when you have an idea for maybe things work this way, maybe this is how the universe is, maybe right, you you start you start having ideas about maybe it works this way. Most of the ideas that you will have are 
old ideas. They are not new ideas. People have had these ideas before. People have explored these ideas, and they have fallen out of favor almost universally for a good reason. So if you want to bring it up, you have to understand what's been done before and what do you need to do to make this a viable idea again. Mm -hmm. Second off, most of the ideas you have that are new ideas will turn out to be bad ideas. <laughs> they will turn out to not work for some reason. They will turn out to lead you nowhere or to reduce to something simple or to be deal breakers because we already have evidence that rules those ideas out. Right. And finally, even if you have a new idea that turns out to be a good idea, it still probably isn't going to be right. Most of the good ideas, most of the good and new ideas don't actually pan out in reality. You know, we have had so many of these. We had the first grand unified theories predicted that the proton would decay and they built these enormous, enormous <laughs> right. tanks full of matter yeah. to look for proton decay. And here we are almost 40 years later and the proton still hasn't decayed. <laughs> <Right>. um, so, <laughs> you know, I think I think that's a lot of what people are working on. And there's also a lot of speculations because there are so many unknowns. I don't think this is despair worthy, but I think it's, you know, you, you have to be a realist about it. You know, mm -hmm. most of us who go into this, we want to take on those big problems. We want to solve those big problems. We want to, to say, you know, well, if the universe works this way, or if the universe that we don't know, um, breaks some symmetry in this way, or has this extra particle or this extra field or this extra symmetry or this extra, whatever it is you invoke, then these would be the consequences. And can we go and look for those consequences? And this is a valuable endeavor, but it's also a frustrating endeavor because you have to be your own harshest critic. You have to sort of think of why would this be wrong? What can I look for to test this up against the prevailing theory? And that is that is a tall order that requires, you know, a willingness to see the value and to feel satisfied with the value you've added in doing this type of work that maybe all it does is it brings up a new idea that you investigate and rule out or constrain. And that is valuable work, but it has to be valuable to you with the day-to-day -day work while you're doing it in order for it to be worth it. Yeah. They also serve whose theories get shot down. Yeah. And, you know, and look, I'm not going to pretend that there aren't people all over the field and in many related fields who idea, whose ideas do get shot down because they do fly in the face of evidence and they continue to plow ahead and pursue them anyway because, you know, well, I can just tweak this or save that or invoke this extra symmetry or whatever uh, to to make it not ruled out. And in that sense, you can never rule a theory out. But we have a rule of thumb that I kind of like, which is you get to invoke God once. You get to <laughs> appeal to divine intervention once. If you have to do it multiple times for your, for your theory to work, right. um, people are going to look at you funny and no one's going to follow the work you're doing. And I think that's, I think that's a pretty good rule of thumb. It seems like it. <laughs> uh, your first book, Beyond the Galaxy, uh, is for lay people, but it deals with astrophysics and difficult concepts. And when you're discussing or writing something for people who don't have a scientific background, how do you try to make it more digestible and, and bridge that gap between academia and the average reader? 
You know, I, I don't think it's that hard. You just have to remember what it was like for you or what it's like for the people you teach or what it's like for the people you know um, before they've learned something. Before someone knew something, what is their mindset? Mm -hmm. And can you find a starting point where that person is comfortable? Um, for instance, when I when I taught intro to astronomy, I didn't start with like, oh, here are the stars and here's how we measure them and here's what we look at. I start with, you know, when you look up at the sky, what do you see? And if you were a, if you were a cave person, if you were on this earth 10,000 years ago and you uh, and you looked out, at the sky, what would you observe? What would you observe day to day, night to night, uh, over the course of a year, over the course of many years? When mm. you watch the sky, what would you see? What stays the same and what changes? That's something where everyone is familiar. Everyone is comfortable with that. People, people can understand that and relate to that. And I think whatever topic you're talking about, that's where you want to begin. You want to begin at a place where you and your audience are comfortable, where you're speaking to them and it's just like you're having a normal conversation about a topic that you want to teach them more about. So you start talking to them about it and then you take a step. You take a step up in difficulty or you you say okay like I'm gonna introduce this new thing with which you may or may not be familiar but we're gonna start discussing it and you do it without jargon you do it in plain English you do it without equations mm -hmm. and you just start explaining what that next step is and once you get everyone comfortable on that next step up you can take another step and this is something that you just continue to do and you work towards this ultimate goal of I want to teach you how the universe began. I want to teach you why our universe is full of matter and not antimatter. Right. I want to teach you why we think dark energy is real. I want to teach you what evidence we have for dark matter. I want, right, you start doing this and you can do it about any topic. But you have to start, in my, in my mind, you have to start where people are comfortable and at least where they feel comfortable. And then you slowly lead them step by step towards where you want them to go. And if you do it successfully, if you do it right, they will get to the end and be like, oh, wow, I feel like I get it. Also, how did I get here? How did <laughs> right. I wind up understanding <laughs> yeah. that dark matter is real and what its properties have to be where we started off and you were sort of telling me about how the earth goes around the sun and now we're talking about dark matter. Um, you know, but if you can do that, um, that's why I sort of say like, look, science is science, but science communication is a fusion of art and science because hmm. it is, it is a, it's a creative endeavor for how do I tell this story in a way that it's going to resonate with you. Yeah. Your second book is called Technology, and in it you attempt to give some real-world perspectives on the fictional technologies of the Star Trek franchise. And this is not like an in-universe technical manual, but an attempt to explain how Star Trek technology could be achieved with our current understanding of physics. What made you decide to write this book? You know, it was uh, it was really a labor of love. I remember when I was in high school, I read the book uh, The Physics of Star Trek by mm -hmm. Lawrence Krauss, mm -hmm. and... Um, you know, I read it in high school and I was fascinated by some of the things and I was like, oh yeah, like if you're a theoretical physicist, you could just like know all this physics and compare the physics of Star Trek with the actual physics that we know. Yeah. And, um, 
you know, it got to the point where I'm communicating science for a general audience. I'm I'm still a big Star Trek fan. I've watched all of Next Generation multiple times and many of the other series, either all the way through or much of the way through. And I realized this big anniversary was coming up, right? It was going to be the 50th anniversary of the premiere of the original series. It yeah. was going to be the 30th anniversary of the premiere of Next Generation. And I started thinking about these technologies and how much fun is it to look back on this vision of the future that people had in the 1960s or the 1980s yeah. and to actually look at where technology has taken us. Because for me, we had technologies that these were all seemingly futuristic when they were proposed. And yet um, many of them, we, we thought like, oh, you'll have to break the laws of physics. You'll have to violate the laws of physics to make these possible. Well, it turns out that, that there are, there were still a few of them, a handful of technologies that we would, we would have to discover new physics in order for them to work. But it's not like we'd have to like throw out all of the physics we know, like how would physics have to be different if we wanted this to work. Yeah. But then there are other technologies where we maybe once thought these might be impossible and it was just sort of a fictitious writing device that brought them into reality, but now they are physically possible. We've learned enough about how, I don't know, uh, how photons work and electric fields work that we've actually made tractor beams for <laughs> little tiny particles, like macroscopic particles, but, but particles nonetheless. And we can pin them in place and adjust these electric and magnetic fields and draw them in or push them out. And wow, you know what? That, that sounds like a tractor beam to me. So in some of these cases, it's really just a question of scaling them up to have them on a starship scale. In other cases, these technologies have already been created, even though people don't know about them very much. Like the military, for example, has made the equivalent of a phaser. They have made a device that is a two-phased laser pulse, where the first phase is this little bit of ultraviolet radiation. And what that ultraviolet radiation does, if you know matter is made of atomic nuclei and electrons, what it does is it kicks those electrons off of the atom so it creates a tiny little bit of a plasma and if you just hit someone with that ultraviolet radiation with that ultraviolet laser yeah you won't feel very much like the plasma might get a little bit hot but that's it that's the only thing you'd feel hmm. um and you can send a second pulse, uh, this infrared radiation. And infrared is what your skin feels as heat. Mm. So again, if you just hit someone with this infrared laser, it would just feel like a warm spot, and that's it. But if you two-phase the pulse, if you first hit someone with the ultraviolet pulse and you create this ionized plasma and you then hit them with a very energetic infrared pulse, those ionized electrons in particular are going to be really efficient at absorbing that infrared radiation. And if you pulse your laser 
fast enough and hot enough, what's going to happen is that ionized plasma is going to absorb that radiation, absorb that energy, and it's going to heat up and expand and make a concussive blast that's going to knock someone off their feet, that's going to possibly knock someone unconscious, but that isn't going to have the potential to be lethal the way that baton rounds or what we call rubber bullets can be lethal. Um, And I feel like this is this is a tremendous advance and people are like well why don't law enforcement have it anyway everywhere and the answer is well right now we don't have it in a little like phaser format we have it as a tank mounted weapon yeah but um but if you could get it down to even being like one of those plasma rifles that you see on star trek um that would be just a tremendous advancement in law enforcement because it can disable a target for up to two kilometers away and imagine what a non-violent solution that could be for law enforcement so you start talking about wow like that was fiction and now we're working on building it and some of these technologies we don't even bat an eyelash out you pull out your smart phone and you're like wow like the original series in star trek thought it would be wonderful if we had an electronic clipboard star trek the next generation (laughs) thought that these padds these pads these like that that would be like wow what an advance and it's no doubt that the original ipad uh was in fact based on the star trek the next generation pads um and now here we are you like just Less than uh, less than fifteen years after the first iPad came out, uh, we all have smartphones in our pockets that are far more powerful than anything that was envisioned in a nineteen nineties incarnation of Star Trek, and that's that's really remarkable too. So for me, writing this book, it was sort of a no brainer. Of you know, I'm a scientist now. I have this expert knowledge. And the stuff I'm not an expert in, I can go find it out. Wouldn't it be fun to not just look at physics technologies, but to look at all of these technologies that were used in Star Trek? And that's where the idea for Treknology came from. And I was lucky enough to work with a partner in Quarto and Voyager Press that um, that worked very closely with CBS and Paramount and Viacom to get the license rights for the images to mm-hmm. stills from all these various Star Trek series and movies to appear in the book. So I think uh, I think the right confluence of circumstances came together at the right time, and we wound up with a product that I was just so pleased to participate in, to write that book, to find the illustrations, to learn the science behind it, and I'm very pleased to report that there were 28 technologies featured in the book, and 24 of them are feasible with our current understanding of physics. Only four of them out of the 28 would require new physics for us to actually make them a reality. And that's really remarkable. Yeah, that's fascinating. Something that stands out for me as unique about Star Trek in comparison to other sci-fi franchises is that the science or technology is so important to the day-to-day storytelling of the universe. Other sci-fi franchises like, say, Star Wars, you know, they have science fictional technologies, but it's often in the service of something cool like lightsabers. But in Trek, the technology is often, if not always, the focus of the storytelling and really, um, you know, guides the story along. We're examining how these technologies have changed a society and um, the, the benefits and the, uh, and the problems they can cause. 
Yeah, I think I think that's something where you think about like, wow, how do people feed themselves in space? And, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, and they're like, oh, we have food replicators. Um, and and that was something that the original series brought up. And of course, like the uh, the replicators got even more advanced in Star Trek The Next Generation. But then you had something uh, like Star Trek Voyager come along where, you know, here's how the replicators work and here's how they pick up matter. And really, if we want to get home again we shouldn't be wasting our our the matter that we're accreting or accruing as we travel through the universe we shouldn't waste that on replicator food so everyone has to eat neelix's garbage poison cooking (laughs) and try and survive that um you know and poor harry kim has to like save up his replicator rations for weeks so he can get a clarinet um, and he can play his clarinet so tom paris can fall asleep or you know whatever it is that comes down i think i think that uh the interplay of technology and and i like how certain technologies for star trek have been around there for long enough that the characters take it for granted until they can't anymore yeah um like that that's really a a nice way to explore the dependence of our lives on various technologies and how we adapt in the absence of those technologies yeah, that is a really great point. And I wonder about their their world and how all because we see amazing technology that stays relatively recognizable through the various eras of Trek. And I wonder how um, often they would have, you know, scientific breakthroughs or technological turnover in their world. Like they figured out a lot of things, but is there or would there be points where they go, oh, we just figured out something totally new that we were working on and now everything has changed for everyone. I think the holodeck could be an example of that. Or, um, you know, I don't know if you've seen Picard, but there's a sequence where Picard goes to Starfleet Academy and there's like just a bank of these doors that are supposedly transporters, I guess. And people are just kind of walking in and out of them with no complicated procedure, no setup, no energize. It's just like they've really come to some breakthrough in terms of like transporting people places. Yeah, I mean, I think we we see that in Star Trek, and I I have seen Picard, but I think uh, it becomes really apparent if you start looking way back at Enterprise, right, with Captain Archer, Uh and you start uh, where the transporter is a new technology, and Archer is grumbling about how he wouldn't send that dog, his dog, through that thing, and I think you know, that's there's actually a real worry to reckon with there. You remember the Next Generation episode where uh, they find Will Riker's transporter accident. Thomas Riker uh, stranded on a planet that they visited like nine years before where everyone thought like, oh, no, we got Will Riker. I think about this like a computer, like, okay, I know that I could take my file and I can just uh, and I can just, you know, cut it and paste it. Right. I could just control X, cut it and control V, paste it. Right. And what that does is that doesn't change your file. It doesn't change the bytes in the file. They stay in the same plates. All that I'm changing is the address. I'm just moving it. Right. Mm -hmm. That's what you want. What you don't want to do is you don't want to control C it where you make a copy, you delete the original, and then you control V and you paste a copy because that's murdering someone every time you use the transporter. Yeah. You murder someone, you create a clone of them where to everyone else, if you did that to me, no one else would know the difference. You've created an identical Ethan Siegel with the same 
hairstyle and the same DNA and the same memories and the same thoughts and the same connections, uh, but you've created it all anew and the original one is dead and no one ever knows. And I've wondered about that is is Will Riker the copy or is Thomas Riker the copy? Would Captain Archer's dog be the same dog? I love my dogs. I don't want to send them to the <laughs> transporter and stop them from existing and wipe them out yeah. and have some new dog instead, even if I can't tell the difference. Um, so I think like when we saw like the evolution of the transporter, that's a big one. But I think if you also look at, geez, remember, uh, I don't think they could go past like warp five in Enterprise right, and they, right. they couldn't do warp nine in the original Star Trek. And, uh, and, and now like, and now we can, now we can do these things. Um, I think the advance and the progression of technology, it really can be transformative. I think with Discovery, if they had uh, been able to keep and maintain and use the spore drive right. thoroughly, um, wow, isn't that better than a warp drive? Wouldn't it be better to just instantaneously go from one spot to another in the galaxy sure. rather than have to travel by, you know... Um, folding the space in front of you and expanding or rarefying the space behind you and 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 creating these warp signatures like you know i think when you realize a new way to solve a problem sometimes that new way is superior and once that happens like wow like we'll never go back to the old way. There's no reason to do it. And we can do it if we have to, and this technology becomes unavailable for right. some reason. But as long as the new technology exists, we're always going to use it. I remember uh, it was only about five years ago, um, I was at a meeting and people were just flipping out because they had to do a video call and they couldn't find the remote to turn on the video broadcasting like system and I'm looking at them like they're all idiots and they're like but, but what are we going to do we can't like where is it and they're, everyone's looking for it and I get up and I walk across the room and I go push a button on the device to turn it on because you don't need a remote you could just turn things on with the button on the thing itself yeah. and I did that and people were like oh yeah Oh yeah, you you don't have to turn everything on with a remote. You can turn some things on with like a switch or a button too. Yeah. Um but you don't use it for long enough and you forget that that's how you can do it. Yeah. <laughs> there, uh, you you talk in your book about how when man first started going to space, you know, it was framed as the next great adventure for humanity. You know, the maps are all filled on filled up on earth, so let's go out into space. And we put our dreams in, into space travel and exploration, but also our fears in a lot of ways. And there's a lot of cautionary sci-fi about man's reach exceeding his grasp and being too curious. But Trek rarely, if ever, has that as a theme. You know, Trek is is pro-technology and it's positive to the point that sometimes I think those clear ethical issues aren't satisfyingly explored. Like the ship, the show originally couldn't exist without the transporter because they couldn't afford to show them landing on a planet. But now the whole franchise just, you know, works and lives on this idea of transporting people. And so I don't think that except for an episode like the Thomas Riker one, they can't really explore that that question of are you killing somebody because it would just shut everything down. Or there's that one episode where um, they kind of touch this, that they, they learn that the warp drive is 
could be destroying the fabric of space. And so for a little mm-hmm. while, they have to go, you know, warp five and have a speed limit. But then they almost immediately drop that because, of course, we need all these technologies to survive. And I wonder if the technology of Trek and the way it's it's um, depicted is essential to their positive view of the universe, to like the goodness of the Federation. Um, you know, I, I think there is that that aspect of it. Um, but when I look at Star Trek, you know, the ethics issue it focuses on are really like, how does this impact individual people? How does this impact, you know, the most marginalized among us? Sure. Um, so like that, that I feel like is where the real ethical issues come into play. Because, you know, the, you can weigh like the needs of the many against the needs of the few, which is a, you know, very important theme. Or you can weigh uh, privacy against security like they do in... In, uh, in one of my favorite Deep Space Nine uh, two-part episodes where they have uh, Homefront and uh, Redemption, I think, the, is the two-part episode where um, basically they're worried that the Dominion is staging a, a coup, that the changelings are staging a coup on Earth, that they have changelings impersonating Federation officers and they're going to make a power grab on Earth and they're everywhere. And so Cisco comes in and basically um, is going to mass test the planet to yes. make everyone prove that they're human. Yeah. That he's going to take blood or a sample, a biological sample from everyone on the planet, and they're going to see that. And he meets his dad. We get to meet Cisco's dad, and Cisco's dad tells him, like, son... This isn't how we do it. We're all free. We all operate under the assumption of innocence, and we don't trade our privacy and our autonomy for this illusion of security. And I was, you know, it's so impressive today that this is a discussion that happened years before 9-11 happened. Mm-hmm. Um, and and Cisco, um, you know, quite you know this this stuck in my head like for a long time when i watched it what cisco does is he basically just tells his goons like hey just grab my dad and inject and and inject him and take his blood and see if he's a changeling or not and of course he's not right um this is cisco's dad and cisco has to just live with that he just has to live with you know what i did i violated my principles i violated the trust of my family uh, all for nothing it didn't even accomplish anything and i went and i did that anyway and i feel like that's uh that's one of the real strengths of star trek and in particular i think that's one of the strengths of deep space nine is Cisco messes up a lot. A lot of them mess up. A lot of them make the wrong decision. And it doesn't mean that they're bad people and they're forever unredeemable. It means that, you know what? You make a bad decision. You know what you have to do? You have to live with it and you have to try and fix it and do better next time and atone for the mistakes you made. And I feel like that is a really, really valuable lesson. I know this this moved away from that ethical question about curiosity um, quite a bit, but but I feel like that's where the real strength of Star Trek lies is exploring 
what are your actions? What are their consequences? When your actions have those unintended consequences, how do you respond to that? What do you do next? Um, because I think I think the rest of the way that played out, it was it was about gathering more information, learning more about this, and and saying, okay, we're not going to do it this strong arm way. We're going to we're going to find another solution. Yeah. And I think that creative solutions to problems that oftentimes people were unaware of existed, that that's one of the places where where Star Trek as a franchise really shines. Yeah, I agree. I think that Trek, you know, the writers aren't scientists and they're not futurists, but they do a pretty good, a pretty sly job, I think, of keeping things plausibly vague uh, for future technology. Like, presumably, Fed, the Federation has mastered a theory of everything to manipulate gravity and space the way they do. Um, but, you know, we don't have, like, a quantum theory of gravity, so they kind of pick their own terminology and they lock into it and expect you to, to follow it that way. And dark matter and dark energy are something that you'd expect that people in Trek would have a much greater understanding of, but it's almost almost never mentioned in the show because we so know so little about it now. So every once in a while they'll find a dark matter nebula or something, but we won't really talk talk about that or or uh or the implications of, of you know what, what they found. Yeah, and I think if you think about that, you know, hundreds of years in the future, we there's a good chance we won't be talking about dark matter whatever because mm. we will have a better description of what that is you know we don't right. we don't talk about uh missing energy from nuclear reactions anymore we talk about neutrinos because yes. we know where that energy went and we know what particles are there right. they have invented all sorts of new types of particles in star trek from you know whatever a dilithium crystal is to <laughs> yeah. chroniton particles yeah. um yeah. and <laughs> And they, they, that's fine. Like they just give them names and that's great. Like give, give them a name and use them and leave it vague enough that, you know, when the science actually gets there, you're not shoehorned into some hokey explanation that that's just totally, totally wrong. I think that's a, that's a very smart move on the on the part of Star Trek writers is to leave it vague enough there's a a famous story where they talked about oh well how could a transporter work if you can't know the position and momentum of your particles simultaneously right. and they just said oh like well we have a Heisenberg compensator yep. and so then they say <laughs> okay well how do the Heisenberg compensators work and the answer is they work very well thank you yes right and of course. <laughs> what a great non-answer yeah. is is that yeah they they sure talk about gravitons a lot and of course gravitons are, are merely hypothetical you know in in our era and if they had actually discovered a graviton or something like that you think they'd give it a name name it after the guy that discovered it but graviton just communicates so much in that word like you get oh it's gravity i get it so i think it's a good idea that they just sort of kept that going forward in the show yeah, and uh, from a theoretical physics point of view, a graviton actually means something very specific, just like we have the photon is the particle mm -hmm. that mediates the electromagnetic force, right. um, and we detect them when we look at the sun or any sorts of light with our eyes. Um, the graviton is the particle 
um, responsible for gravitation in theoretical physics. It is the force carrying particle that would mediate the force of gravity in any quantum theory of gravity. Um, in theory, gravitational waves, those ripples in space-time that LIGO has already detected, um, those waves are made out of particles called gravitons just like the light waves we detect are made out of individual quanta of energy that we call photons yeah. so when someone says gravitons they're just you know yeah we're betting on that gravitons are real they are the way they we think they are are the correct description of gravity and we're going to run with that and that may turn out to be true it may also turn out not to be true or it can turn out to be true and hundreds of years in the future we still won't know whether it's true or not <laughs> yeah. um so you know i think i think it's fine to bet on something panning out i remember there was an episode of next generation where you know someone said to data like well data there's a very big difference between you and a nanite and you know what's <laughs> to say a nanite is alive and data looks back and says like well there's a very big difference between you and a virus but both are alive and yeah. you know according to most biologists today viruses aren't alive yeah. viruses yeah. don't exhibit enough life processes to be considered alive on their own so you know i think it's unreasonable to expect science fiction to get all of the details about science right but i think it is reasonable to expect that they will get the general principles and general stories right and just like everything as we learn more uh they're going to be revised and that is unsurprising that that happens in the star trek universe too that that new technologies appear and supersede the old ones and then we don't talk about the old ones anymore and yeah. i i liked that big jump forward in technology from the original series to next generation um and i think it's very interesting that here in 2020 uh, we actually have surpassed many of the technological expectations yeah. of next generation yeah. that, you know, that was 30 years ago when they were setting it 400 years in the future. And here we are just 30 years later. And you know what? Some of those things <laughs> that we thought were going to take 400 years, we're already there. Yeah, it's hard to predict computers. And they they wisely came up with their own unit of storage, you know, the quad to try to get around that. Oh, yeah. But, but yeah, I love the fact you definitely, that... definitely, definitely don't want to uh, <laughs> bet against Moore's Law these yeah, days. Yeah, right. Like, I love that when you've got a lot of reading or work to do in Star Trek, it means you've got a ton of pads on your desk. And they just couldn't imagine that, say, thousands of books could fit on a chip the size of your fingernail or that your pad could just get them from the cloud like cloud computing and wireless communication for devices are two things that they um, didn't quite get right yeah it's fun to talk about that isn't that that you they would never have imagined like what what are you doing with this enormous enormous ship's computer mm -hmm. with a full database of all the knowledge of everything ever and you're like hang on like I could fit all of the text in all of Wikipedia on like a uh, on in like a, on a set of solid state devices the palm of my hand. Yeah. I could fit 
all of it in there. What are you doing with this massive ship's computer? Um, yeah. <laughs> but yet, because they, they didn't know that the internet would be a thing. They didn't know that you could just send a query to some, like, decentralized database and get an answer back in a tiny fraction of a second. Yeah. Um, that was a technology it did not anticipate. But on the other hand, um, you know, some of the things that they did anticipate, you remember uh, there was, again, an episode of Next Generation where uh, Barclay becomes, like, the greatest genius in the world. Right, and right. And he just decides he's going to build a device to directly interface his brain with the ship's computer. Sure. And the ship's computer is like, I have no idea how to do that. And he's like, oh, well, then I'll just tell I'll just, you. Yeah, and you. <laughs> like, next thing you know, on the holodeck, there's Barclay in his chair hooked up to the computer controlling everything. Yeah. Um, that's a technology that was unimaginable to the writers around 1990 or so mm -hmm. existing 400 years down the line and yet that's exactly the type of technology direct neural interfaces that people are actively developing today so i think when you look at what did we anticipate correctly what did we fail to anticipate I think it's really, really remarkable, and we should kind of be awed by how successful Star Trek has been. Its success rate is really high. Do you think that that's a product of uh, them predicting the future or the future emulating Star Trek? You know, I think it's a little of both, right? Sure. In the case of the... Uh, the communicator, that flip thing becoming the cell phone. Yeah. Although the people who invented it for Motorola swear that oh, they didn't sure. rip it off Star Trek. They, they totally ripped it off Star Trek. <laughs> yeah. Like they totally did. Um, as far as the iPad, Steve Jobs said in an interview where it was him and Bill Gates and a moderator a few years before, like they were talking about, you know, how do you see technology developing and Bill Gates gave like a pretty long nuanced answer and Steve Jobs was like Star Trek I see Star Trek just give me that and then the iPad came out and you know Mike Okuda who made those pads who made the mock-ups yeah. of the pads that they used in Star Trek um, like his design was the design that they emulated the original iPad after. So I yeah. think in many cases, you know, there was recently a a tricorder X Prize that Qualcomm uh, right. invested in to say we're going to have a contest to build a medical diagnostic tool that fits in the palm of your hand that can perform these twelve functions, uh, and it has a maximum weight limit of five pounds. And they awarded that X Prize, I think, in. 2017 because someone has achieved it and I think in a fun twist the company that achieved it was named Final Frontier Labs <laughs> <Yeah>. um, <laughs> because this is this is in a lot of ways uh, science fiction and Star Trek in particular they give people something to strive towards they give people something to look towards and aspire to having that be the reality and i think that is equally as important as it is to guess successfully how science and technology will develop moving forward is to give people something to strive towards is to give people a goal i don't know that we would have the language apps that we have and the ability to translate soft you know text and language and audio the way we do if it weren't for star trek envisioning a universal translator yeah 
I think about the future of Star Trek, and I don't think we ever really see this on screen, but I think about if there would be people in the future of Trek who would be Luddites and who would want nothing to do with technology and how the show might depict them. Because I think, you know, we've talked about all the amazing technologies and how they support the altruism uh, and the egalitarianism of the Federation. I wonder if Trek uh, really sees technology as inherently moral and its use for um, uplifting people as uh, like a moral imperative. You know, the only the only time I recall seeing anything like that in Star Trek was, uh, you, you know, you would occasionally run across like a society where technology led to widespread death and destruction and then they ban a hmm. whole bunch of it. Hmm. Uh, but that leads to a whole slew of problems on its own that often requires the very technology that they issue in order to in order to fix those problems. Yeah. And so I think um I think Star Trek isn't afraid to wrestle with um, the issues of what is the ethical uses of these technologies, but it does come across pretty strongly with that message of, yeah, you need to figure out the ethical use of the technology and and make that the norm. The path forward is not to ban the technology, it's to use it responsibly. And mm -hmm. when people use it irresponsibly, we all need to band together to say no. And that's something that goes all the way back, perhaps most famously, uh, with eugenics to the whole con storyline. Sure. sure. Or even um, a Bashir and uh, being genetically uh, modified. Yeah, that's true as well. Like it's it, it appears again and again uh, throughout Star Trek, and Bashir is an excellent example. Well, as we get to the end here, I wanted to mention some technologies that we don't often see in Star Trek um, outside of we don't see a lot of um, prosthetics outside of something like Geordi's visor or Nog's leg, which we're told about but never really see. It isn't until Discovery that we actually see uh, implants and cybernetics. And I wonder if that's an aesthetic decision by the creators of the show or if it's an aesthetic um, sort of idea in the Federation, like it's distasteful for them to see people you know, being part robot or, or whatever. You know, I'm not I'm not a Star Trek writer, so I can't really speak to that. <laughs> I but that's what true. <laughs> I what I like to think about that is if you were to ask me as a kid, like, what's the biggest example of prosthetics, I would say, Oh my gosh, it's the Borg, right? Look at the yeah. Borg. Look at all the use of prosthetics with the Borg. Um and I think that's because one of the things that we struggle with, one of the themes of Star Trek is sort of that line between human and machine, is that mm. line between what makes something uh, alive. When when does something get rights? They, they explore this with data. They explore this with the Borg. They explore this with, you know, I, I think that interface there is a source of our discomfort. Um, and so I think that when they were bringing that storyline up in the late 80s and the early 90s and things like that, that was the alien. That had the alien feel that, you know, Spock did in the original series. But yeah. now it's not it's not some some other race or some other species that that threatens us. It's that line between human and inhuman, between between machine and mankind. And I, I look at that and I think, you know... The fact that we do have all of this on Discovery now, the fact that we do have, you know, these hybrid 
um, human machine parts that are just integrated together and that's normal on on Discovery or on Star Trek Picard uh, I think that's sort of uh, evidence for how our social comfort with that technology has evolved interesting um, I think it's kind of important for that for Star Trek to push that envelope forward and then not to return to that same envelope decades later but to say okay where has the needle moved to and let's go there yeah let's make that thing that was a contentious issue let's make that normal now and let's move on to the next set of issues we also don't see a lot of artificial intelligence in star trek i mean we've got data obviously but he is you know unique and whenever we do run into a computer it's an evil computer that's you know doing something or other bad and we do see in discovery what might be sort of the root of a possible distaste for AI in the Federation uh, with with control. But I'm just wondering if that is a similar, if that if that comes out of just the roots of Star Trek's uh, roots in 60s sci-fi and just not thinking much about AI or, or where that comes from. Because you've talked, you talk in the book about the incredibly powerful computers in, on the Enterprise that must be at least semi-sentient, able to write their own code, able to interpret context. The whole thing about, like, have the doors read the script? Because how do they know that somebody's got a, a devastating phone mode to deliver, you know, before they leave <laughs> and the door waits for them to do it? And I, mm-hmm. and I just wonder why we don't see more... Um, more Starfleet officers interacting with, uh, you know, AI or um, seemingly intelligent machines. You know, I I don't know that either, but I imagine when I think about artificial intelligence, um, there are a lot of, it's become very fashionable recently for people who call themselves futurists to talk about the (laughs) dangers of AI and artificial intelligence and to worry that like, oh, the machines are going to do this. And, you know, there are sort of this like, dystopian fear of like a terminator like future yeah i i have a hard time sort of thinking that you know oh artificial intelligence is the problem we still almost always need a human to tell the artificial intelligence how to go about doing its business and then the artificial intelligence can learn and complete whatever tasks it it is set to or programmed to learn how to do to complete to complete um pretty successfully but that's that's still dependent on what it's been programmed to do i'm not sure that we will ever see an artificially intelligent machine that um that can basically do all of the things that a human being can do, mm-hmm. right? Uh, we we talk about things like a Turing test, and look, I'll, I'll be the first to admit, based on some recent conversations I've had with people on uh, various social media, that maybe most humans couldn't pass my Turing test. Um, <laughs> that you know, it's it's pretty hard to say, like you know. If you can't make a Roomba that doesn't consistently get stuck in the corner, what makes you think you're going to be able to make an artificial intelligence that can actually successfully interact with a human where a human wants to have those interactions? Right. Um, because for the most part, unless I'm unless I'm playing a well-programmed video game, and that's arguably what what you know what humans have done. You know that that's arguably more of the human interaction than the AI interaction. Um, I'm not, 
I'm not convinced that that is a way that technology is going to develop, yeah. develop is to have, you know, like a HAL 9000 type of computer <laughs> yeah. where where we do send all our interactions through them. I, I can't stand, for instance, using, you know, Siri or Cortana or Amazon's uh, Alexa. I, I can't stand using any of those. They, those things are not experiences I enjoy, so I don't <laughs> use them at all. And yeah. does that make me old fashioned? Maybe, but also I think those technologies just aren't very good. And I think that when, uh, until those technologies are that good, like ba basically I'm in the camp of you have to prove it to me before I'm going to accept that this is really as good as you fear it may become in the future. Yeah. You mentioned that in, in the book as well, that even with their incredibly advanced computers in the future, we still see the characters getting frustrated and mad at the computer all the time. Yeah. Some things never change. And wouldn't you? Like, I think, <laughs> yeah. I think that's a very human thing is like, holy crap, like we spent 400 years developing you and you still don't know what I mean when I tell you I'm going to go take a leak. Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> Somebody, I think it might be author William Gibson, um, said that the singularity that people like Ray Kurzweil talk about, you know, isn't isn't going to be something where we just flip a switch and suddenly the world is totally unrecognizable. It, it's more of a gradual or a generational thing. And he posits that we've been in something of a rolling singularity for the last 50 to 100 years. You know, even, you know, 50, 60 years ago, you could bring somebody to our future now and they just would be gobsmacked and una unable to understand how we're doing some of the things that we're doing. Yeah. I mean, think about your grandparents when you were young. Think about what your grandparents' world was mm -hmm. when they were mm -hmm. young. And imagine just, you know, pulling them out of, I don't know, pulling them out of their world in the 1930s and plunking them down in the world now and saying like, hey, it's almost 100 years later. What do you think? And they'll be like... Okay, like I recognize some of these things, like they're, like I recognize the roads and the automobiles and the buildings and the infrastructure like this, but what the hell is all of this compute computer stuff right. and what is all of this like weird devices people have and why do the cars talk to you <laughs> yeah. and why like uh, there are screens everywhere on everything. Yeah. You know, what happened to a good old fashioned billboard? And you know we can we can grump about that and maybe a hundred years from now, uh, you know, if we were around a hundred years from now. Um, we would be grumping about the same things about like, oh, like what's with all this like neural noise I've got being hooked up to my auto Twitter where I hear the <laughs> average thoughts of three billion people at once, right. you know, maybe, right. maybe that's what uh, our version of the um, board collective will be is we will have just a cacophony of voices like like something horrible out of a philosopher's stone in full metal alchemist i don't know right, right. Um, who knows what's who knows what's coming but it sure is fun to speculate dream and then to compare those dreams with what's actually physical physically possible with known science they're are so many wonderful possibilities for how things can develop that I'm really thankful for series like Star Trek that encourage us to use them in a way that benefit all of humanity. Yeah, yeah, and it's cool to think that we may be creeping ever closer to the type of world that we see on the screen.
You know, I think, uh, you know, the pendulum always swings. It swings forward and back, and it's easy to look at the world the way it is right now. We're recording this on July 22nd, 2020, and to say, like, yeah, there are. There are all sorts of reasons to be upset at the world and to think that we're never going to achieve the future that Star Trek dreams about. But at the same time, all of these efforts really are moving forward. People are working on developing new technologies for the betterment of humanity, and and the vast majority of humanity absolutely supports that, and I think it's important to remember that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks so much, Dr. Siegel, for talking with me today. Uh, let people know where they can find you online. Sure. Uh, my name's Ethan Siegel. I write the column Starts With a Bang at Forbes.com. And you can find me on Patreon at Starts With a Bang. On Facebook, you can like the Starts With a Bang page. And I'm on Twitter at Starts With a Bang. So look for me there. Great. And your books, Technology and Beyond the Galaxy, are available on Amazon and other places. They sure are. They're, on, they're at Amazon. They're on Powell's. They're at Barnes & Noble and anywhere that books are sold. Great. Well, thanks again. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Live long and prosper. You too. Hey, Trekkies, I'm Caliban. And I'm Gooey Fame. And we're the hosts of the new podcast, Backtrekking. I thought that we were going to say it together. Oh, Backtrekking. Do you want to do it again? Just just don't worry about it. Every week, we look at the real-life inspirations behind classic Star Trek episodes. The original series, Next Gen, DS9, Voyager, and more. And we're examining the actual events, stories, and concepts that they're based on. Join us as we go trekking through sci-fi history. You know, we have a time machine. Let's go back and do the intro again. Hey, Trekkies, I'm Caliban. Backtracking! God damn it! <laughs>